Hello, this is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from the week of June 24th. We must go beyond defunding the police. The recent killing of George Floyd at the hands of the police has sparked outrage. Millions of people have hit the streets to demand an end to police violence, systemic racism, and black oppression. With daily demonstrations and rallies being held in cities and towns throughout the country and around the world, people are refusing to stay silent. These eruptions come at a time when police brutality continues to terrorize communities. The U.S. leads all countries in police killings, with an average of 1,000 people killed by cops each year. This is in comparison to other wealthy countries like England and Wales, who have had 55 fatal police shootings in the past 24 years. In violation of international guidelines, police in the U.S. are also more likely to use deadly force over nonviolent or less lethal options. Police recruits spend seven times as many hours in firearms training than they do in de-escalation training. The number of police killings disproportionately affects black people. Despite only making up 13% of the U.S. population, blacks are three times more likely to be killed by police. One out of every 1,000 black men in the U.S. will die at the hands of law enforcement. Black drivers are also 20% more likely to be pulled over than white drivers. The racism that drives police bias and brutality is clear. And it's not slowing down. Since Floyd's death, with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets demanding an end to police terror, police murders have continued. The murder of Rayshard Brooks by Atlanta police, who was shot in the back as he ran away, was captured on video and viewed by millions. In Vallejo, California, Sean Mantarosa was shot five times as he knelt with his hands up. His murder was witnessed, but not videoed. Defund the police, a popular slogan. In the wake of this global upsurge, nationwide calls have grown to defund the police as a way to confront police racism and violence. It's a proposal that's been pushed by activists for some time in response to the continuing failure of police reforms. Recently, it's been gaining increased support and media attention, and it has resonated with many people who are beginning to focus their energies on reforming the police. Most advocates are calling for the huge resources and budgets that are normally allocated for police departments to be used instead for social services such as education, healthcare, and housing. Doing so, they say, will better address the root causes of what is viewed as crime, like poverty, mental illness, and homelessness. Others are more focused on addressing police practices and policies, like what incidents the police should respond to and whether they should be armed or not. For others, defunding is not enough and they are demanding the complete abolition of the police. Instead of a police force, they are in favor of developing community response networks to resolve disputes 
using nonviolent methods. The meaning of the slogan, defund the police, may continue to evolve and be shaped by those fighting for it. The response from the government. As the demand to defund the police continues to grow, government officials at all levels have been forced to respond. In Minneapolis, the epicenter of the George Floyd protests, the city council recently pledged to dismantle their police department. They say this will start a year-long process to engage with the community and study how a new public safety system could be implemented. This includes a ballot measure in the November elections where people will vote on reducing the number of city police officers. In New York City and Los Angeles, the mayors have proposed minor cuts to their multi-billion dollar police budgets that they say will be reinvested in social programs. At the state level, New York Governor Cuomo quickly pushed through a series of reforms directing all cities and towns to redesign their police forces by April 2021 to continue to be eligible to receive state funding. This mandates banning chokeholds, making officers' disciplinary records available for public review, and reviewing current policing practices. At the federal level, politicians have also been pressured to do something. Although initially silent, top Democrats have responded to the crisis, but in their usual ways, by introducing legislation to better train police officers, proposing new commissions to address racial disparities, and of course, by asking people to vote for them in the upcoming elections to get any of this done. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has made it clear he doesn't support defunding the police at all, and actually wants to give police departments an additional $300 million to implement what he calls meaningful reforms, such as retraining of police officers. Other officials have dismissed the proposal as being impractical, irresponsible, and even dangerous, while some have simply stayed clear of the demand to defund the police at all. Trump has made the question of the police a key aspect of his re-election campaign, branding himself as the law and order president and portraying the Democrats as being weak on crime and not supportive of the police. His recent executive order proposes guidelines and training measures that would be paid for by the federal government, if approved by Congress. He had to address the strangulation of George Floyd, saying, quote, chokeholds will be banned except if an officer's life is at risk, unquote. The insignificant impact of Trump's proposals to control police violence was reflected by the praise it received from the National Fraternal Order of Police, FOP, the largest police union in the U.S., which defends cops no matter how horrid their crimes. Reforms will not be enough. The solutions being offered by politicians are not new. Similar reforms were introduced in 2014 following a wave of protests that ignited over the police killings of Mike Brown and Eric Garner. The Obama administration created the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing to supposedly address police brutality. But the task force did nothing more than develop reports and provide advice on what to do. Most police departments ignored their recommendations. The use of police body cameras and review commissions were also adopted, 
but these changes have done little to prevent police murders and hold officers accountable for their actions. In fact, many of the videos that have led to a response have come from witnesses using their cell phone cameras. Since 1994, the federal government has also had the power to subject local police departments to federal supervision, what's known as a consent decree. The decree claims to monitor and reform police departments that are engaging in unconstitutional, unlawful, and racist behavior and policing. Many police departments have come under this order, with some remaining under it for years, without seeing much improvement. The City of Oakland's police department has been under federal oversight since 2003. And under the Trump administration, the practice of using consent decrees has been largely rolled back anyway. Implementing stricter policies and procedures doesn't necessarily mean police will follow them. Cops have some of the most powerful unions and are often protected from lawsuits under the Qualified Immunity Doctrine, which basically protects cops from civil lawsuits for most actions they have carried out because they are just doing their job. So, they have no problem using lethal or brutal force, knowing that they will get away with it. Basically, they have a license to kill. As a consequence, only 104 police officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter since 2005. As of 2019, only four of them have been convicted of murder. It should be clear that attempting to reform the police once again will not lead to any significant changes. Protect and serve who? The police do not exist to protect and serve the majority of us. Since its formation, the main role of the police has been to defend the ruling class and the property they own and control. The first police forces were formed in the early 1700s in the South as slave patrols to capture runaway slaves and return them to those who claimed ownership. Beginning in the early 19th century, modern police departments began to form in the industrial north and were used to violently suppress striking workers and patrol working-class neighborhoods. In 1916, the large-scale movement of black people from the rural south to the cities of the north and west began, known as the Great Migration. From that point on, much of the focus of the police shifted from recent immigrants and white workers to the violent control of black people in the urban areas. Fast forward to today, and we see the police playing the same role. Despite the sincere attempts to reform the police, police forces have been playing an increasingly repressive role. This is marked by an ever-increasing militarization of local police forces in recent decades. As part of a program established by the 1997 National Defense Authorization Act under President Clinton, local police agencies have received vast amounts of surplus military equipment. Between 1997 and 2014, they have received $4.3 billion in military-grade gear, including tens of thousands of machine guns and assault rifles, 600 mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, also known as MRAPs, 205 grenade launchers, and thousands of night vision equipment and camouflage gear. 
Under the program, agencies that receive the military equipment are required to make use of it within a year of acquiring it, or they must send it back, essentially forcing them to use it against us. All this equipment has been added to the already heavily armed Special Weapons and Tactics, or SWAT, teams that exist in most police departments. The Los Angeles Police Department began to develop one of the earliest SWAT teams following the Watts Rebellion in 1965. It served as a model across the country. Its first major deployment was against the Los Angeles Black Panther Party office. In the early morning of December 9, 1969, a force of 350 police took part in the assault, which, after a four-hour gun battle, led to the surrender of the six Panthers who were in the office. Since that time, SWAT teams have been used for other political attacks. They have been overwhelmingly used against black communities across the country, mainly for drug raids and to serve arrest warrants. Of the approximately 50,000 SWAT raids that take place each year, only 7% are for emergency situations. The violence of poverty. We cannot talk about police violence without understanding the conditions that give rise to it. Police brutality maintains the social and economic inequalities of capitalist society. Minneapolis, for example, is one of the poorest cities in the country, with a poverty rate of 20.7%, a 9.4% official unemployment rate, and an estimated 4,000 homeless people. Its racial disparities are some of the worst nationwide. The median yearly income for black families is $38,178, compared to the $84,459 for white families. The black poverty rate is 25.4%, which is over four times higher than that of white residents, and the incarceration rates for blacks is 11 times that of whites. There are never going to be enough jobs for everyone under capitalism. The poverty and inequality that results pushes some people into criminal activity for survival. But the real crime is creating the desperate conditions that people live in. These poor and working class communities, especially those composed mostly of people of color, face cops who are given the authority to maintain control by any means they choose including using violence and lethal force. People not only face the violence of the police, they also face the threat of going to prison for any infraction the cops want to make up. We need to rethink public safety. Due to the high levels of crime and violence that exist in many communities, many people feel the need for some sort of security force to protect them from possible threats. And with no alternative, they look to the police, but public safety shouldn't just focus on protecting our lives. Feeling safe in society means having a secure job, a place to live, access to health care and education, as well as other basic necessities. This is not the case in the U.S., where an estimated 80% of working people are living paycheck to paycheck. Over half a million people are homeless on any given night, and 28 million people don't have health insurance. This is happening at a time when the three richest billionaires in the U.S. own more wealth than the poorest 50% of the population. 
Where do we go from here? The growing push to defund the police is an understandable demand in beginning to address the issue of police brutality. Of course, with the reforms that are being held out, we will take what we can get at this time, especially the redirecting of police funds into poor communities. But we shouldn't stop there. We need to recognize the limits of the attempt to defund and reform the police. Whatever is offered will not lead to the elimination of the system of capitalism the root cause of most of the issues that plague our society. We must go beyond attempting to eliminate the police forces. For us to truly be safe, we need to get rid of the system of capitalism which creates and maintains the inequality we face. It makes no difference whether the governments are headed by Democrats or Republicans. They both defend the interests of corporations and the 1%. The police play a defined role in this society. The police are there to serve and protect the 1%. Capitalism and its police go hand in hand. The goal of the reforms the politicians are proposing is to get us to stop protesting in the streets and instead go home to watch and wait. Governor Cuomo said it very clearly after he pushed through the proposals to reform the police in New York. He said, quote, you won. You won. You accomplished your goal. Society says you're right. The police need systemic reform. That was accomplishment one. Now go to step two. Unquote. Step two is wait for the process of police reforms to take place city by city and town by town, if ever. They can pass their laws and talk all they want, but the reality of police terror remains. The reality of racism remains. The reality of poverty remains. The reality of our exploitation remains and will remain as long as this system stands. The politicians know about the racism of this society. They have chosen to ignore the terror it brings into many people's lives, and they have refused to take even minimal steps to do anything about it. The times have changed, and the politicians have been forced to act because of the determination that hundreds of thousands of us have shown in the streets for the last month. If we continue to organize and depend on our own forces, this mobilization can be the beginning of a fight to really change this society. We have the power to end this system that rests on exploitation, oppression, and racist violence. The question in front of us is whether we look to others for reforms or whether we stay mobilized and look to ourselves. Who would have thought? Who would have thought in January 2020 that more than 2 million people in the U.S. would be sick with a virus and over 117,000 would die by June? 28% of the U.S. workforce would be officially unemployed, We would be sheltering at home for months on end. Education would be a digital affair, whether we chose it or not. All of the above flowed from the action and inaction of Trump and the other politicians and the bosses and bankers whose interests they represent. Who would have thought, four weeks ago, that millions of people all over the world would be marching day after day against racist police murder in defense of black lives and for social justice. Cops who committed racist murders would be fired and charged within a week, and police chiefs would be fired 
or resign within days of the crime, cities all over the country would be debating and acting on defunding police departments, the conservative Supreme Court would support the right of LGBTQ people and reject Trump's attack on DACA dreamers. But it is exactly this movement of angry, determined people that has changed how we think and, more importantly, has brought about these changes. We have the power to turn everything around. Climate change sets a scary record in Siberia, June 23rd. Verkoyansk, a town in Siberia north of the Arctic Circle, has an average high temperature for June of 66 degrees Fahrenheit and an average low of 44 degrees Fahrenheit. On June 20th, this city hit a record high temperature over 100 degrees. The scorching temperature has also led to an outbreak of wildfires. This part of the world receives sunlight 24 hours a day this time of year. Until cool air blows from the north, the heat wave will continue. This year, the ice broke up in the Siberian rivers earlier than usual. Climate scientist Martin Stendhal has said that if it were not for climate change, the dramatic swings in temperature in northwest Siberia last month would happen only once in 100,000 years. Due to a process known as Arctic amplification, the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. As Arctic ice melt accelerates, the seasonal fall-to-spring snow cover is no longer as white. The brilliant whiteness on this part of the Earth is replaced with dark ocean water and land, which absorbs more sunlight rather than reflecting it, which in turn leads to more warming, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That's significant for the rest of the world, too. Melting ice in the Arctic leads to higher sea levels, and not just in the Arctic Ocean. With fewer sections of ice to reflect sunlight, the world's oceans are warming, leading to stronger hurricanes and typhoons. The climate catastrophe clock is ticking. The oil companies and other big capitalist businesses have shown little or no interest in slowing it down. And it's likewise with the politicians they finance. The rest of us need to, and can, organize to save the world. COVID-19, reality is scary. So is Trump's denial. At his political rally in Tulsa last Saturday, Trump said he wants to reduce testing for COVID-19. In his speech, he said, Quote, you know testing is a double-edged sword. Here's the bad part. When you do a lot of testing, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please, unquote. What's the consequence of us not knowing who has it? Deaths. Just the day before, Tyson Foods said that it was investigating an announcement from China that it was suspending imports of chicken from a Tyson plant in Arkansas. Tyson said that it has tested employees at the plant for COVID-19 and that of 3,748 tested, 481 tested positive. That's about 13%. Tyson said that the virus couldn't be transmitted to China through the chicken. 
but that's not the point. A large part of its workforce is sick and facing the risk of death. Tyson also said that 455 of the 481 infected workers showed no symptoms. So, with less testing, the virus would have been almost undetected. Apparently, that's what Trump wants. He doesn't care if people get preventable disease on his watch. He just hopes that nobody notices. He wouldn't want it to hurt his reputation. Second wave? No, we're still in the first. Due to all the 50 states in the U.S. reopening after months of shelter in place, some are talking about a second wave of COVID-19 infections. However, a second wave implies that the first one ended, which it hasn't. Across the country, daily reports of COVID-19 cases have maintained the same pace for over a month. 21,000 new cases are reported every day according to a New York Times database, with 800 daily deaths caused by the virus. In 22 states, cases started climbing again on June 13th, and in several states, the highest single-day spikes occurred in the last week. Some are attributing the rise in numbers to a rise in available tests, but epidemiologists say that the increase of cases in Sunbelt states, California and southernmost states, are due to increased transmissions. So what is the justification for reopening if it is clear that it will only roll us back to how things were before shelter in place? Trump and other politicians are pressuring states to reopen to get the economy running again. It's estimated that if social distancing measures had been adopted two weeks earlier, 83% of COVID-19 deaths could have been avoided. To date, we have seen over 122,000 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. Politicians know that reopening means thousands more dying unnecessarily. Once again, they're showing what their priority is, defending this system, even if it means killing thousands of people. First, COVID-19, and now hunger too. Recent drone footage of New York, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas has shown long lines of people waiting to get a bit of food to fill up their empty refrigerators. These lines are yet another result of this pandemic. But deeply, these are the result of a capitalist system that has been preying on people's labor and lives like a vulture for centuries. According to the data released by The Intercept by the end of April, one in five American households were struggling with food insecurity. Similarly, according to a UN report titled The Impact of COVID-19 on Food Security and Nutrition, one explanation of this data is a disruption of the food supply chain, where tons of gallons of milk have been dumped because switching from commercial to household distribution requires new equipment for these suppliers, and meat production plants have stopped work as workers got sick. Additionally, harvests lack labor as borders have closed down, making it even harder for immigrants, the main source of labor in the fields, to come in. All of this causes food prices to increase. Empty refrigerators are also caused by unemployment, According to government statistics, the unemployment rate in the U.S. is already at 13%, one of the highest rates ever, but in reality, 
it is much higher as many are left out of this calculation. Some people are living on $179 per week, around $720 per month, barely enough to cover the price of food, medical services, transportation, and expenses for their children. And of course, this is not a crisis only in the U.S., but throughout the entire world. This same UN report shows that the number of people who are at risk of starvation is predicted to double by the end of the year. The fact that our food system is fragile, extremely wasteful, and unequal is no news. The fact that millions were living paycheck to paycheck before the crisis is no news. But the pandemic has intensified these truths and will claim the lives of more people as an indirect result. We know the authorities and corporations have done nothing in the past to eliminate hunger and are doing little now, so there is no time to wait. It is up to working people and the unemployed to take matters into their own hands, to demand and ensure food justice where there has been none before. A court victory for dreamers, but we have to keep fighting. On Thursday, June 18th, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four to overturn Trump's plan to end DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, an executive order by the Obama administration that has allowed 650,000 immigrants who came to the United States as children to stay here. If the court had voted the other way, these people who have been raised in this culture and society their whole lives would have faced immediate deportation. This continuation of DACA is great news for these young people and their families, as well as for all of us, who have everything to gain from living in a world where all people have the right to live freely where they choose. At the same time, let's keep in mind that it wasn't Trump's inhumane plan that the Supreme Court opposed. It was the way he tried to do it. The court ruled that the White House didn't provide sufficient justification for deporting all these people. If he had given what they considered legally sufficient reasons, the court would have supported him. Sometimes the court appears as heroic. Sometimes it appears as a villain. And as in this case, it sometimes does the right thing for the wrong reasons. We can't wait and leave our fate to nine judges or to the politicians to pass a new law. As we have seen in the last three weeks, when millions of people go out in the streets to show their anger and determination day after day, many things can change and change very quickly. In fact, it is perhaps this anger in the streets right now that made the courts choose not to add fuel to the fire by proposing to deport 650,000 young people from the place they call home. Corporations try to exploit the Black Lives Matter movement. In response to massive protests, riots, and ongoing fights against racist police brutality, companies and banks are posting public relations messages and publishing letters from CEOs. They're revising their diversity goals and pointing to all the money they've donated to police reform measures or to support black businesses. The pent-up rage at the violence and racism of this society is erupting in the streets. None of these problems will lessen because of a few messages from companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, Citibank, and Starbucks. 
To them, this is another chance to profit off of a crisis, to position themselves in a better place to capture the market and gain favor with consumers. No one is being fooled. Amazon's claim that it stands in solidarity with the black community rings hollow after its firing and slandering of Chris Smalls, a black worker in New York who was a leader of COVID safety walkouts in April, or after the billions of dollars of legally sanctioned looting they do every day. The billions they claim as profits is really the unpaid labor of exploited workers, including black workers and other workers of color. Amazon's real solidarity is with the police. They've developed facial recognition and tracking technology, handed over data from video doorbells to police departments, and helped Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and even directly raised funds for police departments through their charity wing. Part of Amazon's reaction to the movement against racist police violence has been to issue a one-year moratorium on police use of its facial recognition technology, so they've committed to a one-year break, not a permanent one, nor an admission that the technology is racist. Other corporations have different tactics, touting their support of police reforms or their donations to black businesses. For example, Microsoft received a grant from the Justice Department to create an online tool to distribute more equitable fines and has donated hundreds of thousands to police training on, quote, emotional intelligence. Microsoft is just as guilty as Amazon at helping the state dole out fines and enforce injustice. When Black Lives Matter first became a slogan from protesters in 2013 and 2014 around the killings of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, almost no companies felt the need to react to these protests by declaring they believe that Black Lives Matter. Today, they feel the need to respond, which is one indicator of the strength and depth of these uprisings. Corporations and banks have the platforms and wealth they do from exploiting black workers. They rely on keeping racial hierarchies, and they all need the police to protect their status and wealth. After all, why would any of us put up with the system they've set up if we weren't forced to? They steal from us every day, and we're right to stand up against them and call them out on the hypocrisy of their empty words. We must not let them get away with it. Deep fake technology, a dangerous tool. An emerging trend for both the advertising and entertainment industries are edited videos known as deep fakes. They're videos or clips of people doing and saying things that they've never done or said. Oftentimes they are used for comedy, as in a video of Tommy Wiseau playing in Star Wars, for example. These videos use technology to map an individual's face so that it can be digitally manipulated to look like another person. This is coupled with a new technology in voice editing that uses a short clip of audio from a person talking and then re-splices the audio clips to make it sound like they're saying something different, recording the sounds to make new words. There are limitless possibilities for using both of these techniques together, changing both faces and words. Deepfake technology was based on the software embedded in Snapchat filters that make you look like a dog or have a flower crown on your head. Because of the past few years, Snapchat has collected such a large pool of faces using these filters, the technology has become more effective and harder to spot.
It's widely available now, so anybody can make convincing deep fakes. And it's easy and free thanks to applications like FaceApp. Deep fakes can be used to manipulate public opinion for social or political gain. And in the age of fake news, they allow false words to be put into people's mouths. At the same time, the existence of this technology can allow politicians to deny having done or said things which they actually have, claiming it's a deep fake. The more prevalent these videos become, the harder it will be to trust any evidence or source. For the ruling class, this is a technology that has endless uses for profit or propaganda. For the rest of us, deep fakes represent a very real threat to our ability to know the truth. We will have to be ever more vigilant about our sources. Speak Out Now is a revolutionary socialist organization. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. We want to thank Boots, Riley, and The Coup for letting us use their song Get Up featuring Dead Prez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>